You're listening to You Can't Take It With You, the KPMG Law Estate Planning Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Higdon, and I'm joined by my co-host, Elena Speck. Both Elena and I are estate and trust lawyers with KPMG Law LLP. Our show is about estate planning and all the legal, financial, and tax issues involved. It's a huge topic, so each week we pick a manageable chunk of something we find interesting and share it with our listeners. If you're a lawyer, an articling, or a law student, a professional advisor, or someone who just wants to be prepared, this podcast is for you. On today's show, we're going to be talking about gifts. As always, we start our show with a quick disclaimer. We are lawyers after all. This podcast is intended to provide general information about estate planning and administration, and we cannot advise on anyone's unique situation. Consequently, we ask you not to take the materials we present as legal advice. Estates law is complicated, and everyone's circumstances are different. Please speak to your lawyer for legal advice. KPMG Law is a truly global firm with offices in more than 140 countries, but this podcast will speak only to planning and administration in Canada. Okay, let's talk gifts. Elena, what's a gift? Well, it's a gift. It's when you give something to someone for free, or what we call without consideration, which means the same thing. And there are no takebacks once you give a gift. Well, that depends. You can imagine that there have been a lot of disputes about whether something was a true gift alone or simply just asking somebody to look after something for you. That might be called a trust or something we call bailment. Like uh, when you check your coat. Yes, exactly. Dropping off your coat at a coat check isn't gifting your coat to the establishment. It's something else. In this case, a bailment. To make a legally binding gift, one that can't be revoked by the giver, you need to meet some formal requirements. You've got to have three things. One, the property must be given without consideration or expectation of consideration. Two, the recipient must accept the gift. And three, the gift must be delivered. So what happens if you don't do one of these three things? Like, say, the gift isn't delivered. It's not a legally valid gift. So, for example, if I say to you, Elena, I want you to have my favorite KPMG coffee mug. I'm going to give it to you as a gift. Sounds crazy. Wild. Yes. Why would I do this? You know, it's an excellent mug. In fact, it's my very favorite. But let's say that I did and you accept it. Naturally, I would. Yes, of course. It's a fine mug. If you accepted it, but owing to the pandemic, we never met to do the exchange. And then something happened to me. I got bumped on the head and was no longer capable. <laughs> this has taken a dark turn. It has, yes. But you still wanted the mug and applied for a court order that my substitute decision maker turn it over because I had given it to you as a gift. The judge wouldn't make the order because the mug hadn't been properly gifted. There was no delivery. Exactly. D delivery is an essential element for making a valid gift, but it doesn't always have to be physical delivery. That wouldn't work very well for real estate, would it? You can't very well move a house. In the alternative of physical delivery, courts look for some kind of act or acts that satisfy the delivery requirement, what the law calls constructive delivery. In those cases, the courts look to see if the gift giver retained control of the property and whether all that could be done has been done to transfer title to the recipient. Real estate, for instance, is transferred by a written deed of transfer. As an aside for those who enjoy legal history, delivery of Saison was an ancient common law way of formally concluding the conveyancing of land, where the transfer literally took earth from the ground and put it in the hands of the transferee in front of witnesses. In that case, the deed was the passing of earth. Now, of course, we use a written deed, a deed of transfer. So please don't ask your real estate lawyer to help you do this. <laughs> but it's interesting to think of the ways that the common law has tried to solve the problem of how to clearly demarcate the delivery of real property. Very interesting. 
Now, we would be remiss if we didn't pause for a second and give a tax warning for gift giving. Making a valid, legally enforceable gift can be a great idea, but careful consideration should be given to the tax consequences. Without going into too much detail, remember that from a Canadian income tax perspective, when you give a gift, and depending on what type of asset you're giving, you are deemed to have disposed of the gifted property at its fair market value right at the moment the gift is made. This means that even though you gave away the gift for free, tax law pretends that you actually sold the gift at its market rate. If the property is worth more when you gift it than what you paid for it originally, generally speaking, the difference is taxable in your hands as a capital gain. But it really depends on the type of asset that you're gifting. If you gift cash, for example, that's not a problem because cash isn't susceptible to capital gains. However, if you're giving your son or daughter an investment property, well then, yes, you are likely to be susceptible to capital gains. If that's too much tax talk for you, don't worry. Please just remember to talk to your accountant or tax lawyer before making any significant gifts. Thanks, Andrew. That's a good takeaway. Okay, we've been talking about gifts made during the lifetime of the gift giver, what lawyers call inter vivos gifts. But we're estates lawyers after all, so let's talk about gifts made after death in a will. As you might imagine, gifts made on death have different legal rules than gifts made during life. You can see why. You can't very well deliver property to another person when you've passed away. Instead of the inter vivos rules on death, a properly prepared and executed will provides all the legitimacy needed to transfer gifts to beneficiaries. Gifts made in wills only take effect once the testator, the person whose will it is, dies. So even if someone has told you that they've left you a gift in their will, you have no entitlement to that property until that person has died, at the earliest. Indeed, if the testator continues to have capacity, he or she can execute a new will up until the moment they pass away. So don't count your chickens before they hatch, as many overeager beneficiaries have done. For this reason, it can be a good idea not to tell anyone about gifts you plan to leave. It's really not any of their business, and if you change your mind later, you don't want spoiled expectations to boil over into disputes or litigation. We sometimes say that a will speaks from death to articulate this idea. No matter when the will was actually prepared, from a legal perspective, when we interpret the provisions of a will, we act as though it only came into being right when the testator died. So what types of gifts can be left in a will? Could, say, a KPMG coffee mug be left in a will to a beloved co-host? Not likely, but, you know, I'll take it under advisement, Elena. First, here's some terminology. A gift in a will is called a bequest. A bequest can be either for a specific sum of money, what we call a legacy, or it can be for a particular piece of property, either real or personal, or something called the residue that we'll discuss shortly. Real property or real estate is the legal term for land and buildings. A bequest of real property is usually called a device. Personality is everything else. It includes chattels, the legal term for objects like furniture, jewelry, cars, and so on. This also includes intangible property like a contractual right to something or intellectual property. All of these types of property can be made subject to a bequest. Since you want a will to dispose of all your property on death, after all, you can't take it with you. Rather than name each and every piece of property, the law allows testators to make gifts of specific property and then make a general gift of everything else. This remainder, which in most cases forms the majority of a person's estate, is called the residue. Since the residue is a pool of assets, it's easy to gift it to multiple people by dividing it into shares. A residuary gift is therefore often a percentage of the estate. In practice, this means that during an estate administration, the executor pays residuary gifts last because the executor will need to have paid all debts, taxes, and other gifts first before knowing how much is left over to divide as residue. 
That's right. So going back to your original question, how are gifts left in a will classified? Well, generally, there are residuary gifts, general legacies, demonstrative legacies, and specific gifts. We've talked about residuary gifts already. They're the share of the remainder of the estate after everything else has been distributed. General legacies are gifts of money that don't have a specific origin. They're not connected to any particular source of money in somebody's estate. Demonstrative legacies are gifts of money from a name source, like a particular bank or investment account. Specific gifts are just that, gifts of defined and ascertainable property. This distinction is important because of a concept called abatement. Wills may speak from death, but they're often written years and maybe decades in advance. Sometimes a testator will give specific property in a will, but through the passage of time, the specific property is sold, replaced, or lost. If the will remains unchanged when the testator dies, the will contains language gifting property that the testator no longer owns. Those gifts are said to abate. Likewise, a testator might include a generous cash gift in a will, but by the time of death, there is not enough money left in the estate to pay them all. That's a great reason to review your planning every three to five years or on any significant life event. If a gift abates, that means that it isn't delivered. It just cancels. Without going into too much detail, if the gift is for a specific piece of property that the testator no longer owned, the gift abates, and that's that. There's no gift. If the gift is for an amount of money and there isn't enough value in the estate assets to pay all the gifts, the law of abatement determines the order in which the gifts are canceled. Residuary gifts disappear first. Then the law of abatement cancels gifts starting from the most general, such as general legacies, to the more specific, demonstrative legacies, to the most specific, gifts of specific property. Within each class of gifts, gifts of personality abate before gifts of real property. And if more than one beneficiary is entitled to an abated class, they each take a prorated amount. So a beneficiary who was gifted a house, a specific piece of real property, would get their gift while a cash legacy for another beneficiary would abate. Or to put it another way, an executor would not sell a house to pay for a cash legacy. The law of abatement is complicated. We've gone over it very quickly. If it should ever impact an estate with which you are involved, your lawyer will advise you. It's not an easy situation for beneficiaries when abatement occurs. Yes, it is not a pretty picture, but it does happen. One surefire way of avoiding this is to give only shares in the residue without any specific gifts. A share in the residue of an estate is not a set amount, so it can grow and shrink to reflect the ultimate size of the estate. However, it may mean foregoing leaving family heirlooms and other emotionally significant articles to specific beneficiaries, which are often crucial to testators. Or, of course, you could gift these significant articles during lifetime as well. Very true. It's important to think critically about these issues and review your planning frequently, particularly if there are large fluctuations in the value of your assets. Now I'd like to introduce a new segment to our podcast, Articling Student Answers. Most aspiring lawyers in Canada undergo a period of on-the-job training before they can be called to the bar called Articling. KPMG Law employs and mentors Articling students at its offices in Vancouver and Toronto. If you're a law student and are interested in Articling with KPMG Law, drop us a line for more information. Today, we're joined by Lily Lee, an Articling student from our Toronto office. Welcome to the show, Lily. Hi. So, Lily, what answers do you have for us today? On the topic of gifts... I thought I'd talk to your listeners about another type of gift, namely gift made donatio mortis causa. Sounds great. Take it away. Well, you've talked about inter vivos gifts or gifts made during a lifetime, and you've talked about gifts left in a will. Gifts made donatio mortis causa are in between. They are gifts made during the lifetime of the donor, but effective only on death. Imagine a fighter pilot about to undertake a dangerous mission. She gives her watch to her friend and tells her that. 
If she does not make it back from the mission, her friend is to keep the watch. If she survives her mission, then she'll take the watch back. That is a gift to Nashua Mortis Causa. In order for it to be valid, the law requires three things. First, the gift must have been made in contemplation, though not necessarily in expectation of death. Secondly, there must have been delivery to the recipient of the subject matter of the gift. And lastly, the gift must be made during such circumstances as to show that the thing is to revert to the giver in case that she should survive. An example of this working in practice and an interesting problem that can arise can be found in the Ontario case of Brown and Rottenberg, decided by the Court of Appeal in 1946. In that case, a husband gave his wife a key to a safety deposit box and a bank book. I wonder what a bank book is for a bank account the morning before the surgery. The surgery did not go well, and the husband died. His wife argued that he'd been given a gift to National Mortis Causa, and that by giving her the key and the bank book, her husband had delivered the contents of the safety deposit box and the money in the bank account described in the bank book. A note to our younger listeners, banks used to give account holders little blank books that the bank company's employees would update each time you made a withdrawal or deposit so that you could see the history of the activity in your account. Nowadays, this would be like a, a printout of your online bank statement. So what did the Ontario Court of Appeals say? They agreed that giving the key was enough to show delivery of the gift of the safety deposit box and its contents. But they disagreed that the bank book was enough to do the same. A mere bank book doesn't entitle the holder to the funds in the account, and so its delivery did not transfer title or grant control over the money in the account. The gift of the key was a gift to National Mortis Casa of the safety deposit box, but the gift of the bank book was not a gift to National Mortis Casa of the bank account. This case has been followed to this day. Thanks, Lily. That's a great case. One other final point before we go that people might be interested in on the subject of gifts. Just because you are set to receive a gift under a will does not mean you are legally obligated to accept it. For whatever reason, be it personal, tax, or otherwise, some people make the choice not to accept a gift that they have been left. This is called disclaiming, and for the purposes of the will, when you disclaim a gift, you will be treated as though you predeceased the testator. Depending on the nature of the gift, it will either pass to the backup beneficiary identified by the testator, or in the absence of one, it will fall into the residue of the estate. So I hate to tell you, Andrew, but the answer is no. I don't want your KPMG mug. As it turns out, though, you can't force me to take it. Thankfully, I've got two lovely KPMG mugs of my very own. Well, you certainly can't disclaim a gift that no one's offered to give you. I'm keeping my mugs. Okay, that's our show. Today, we learned that gifts given during the life are called inter vivos gifts. In order to be legally binding as a gift, a gift must be made without consideration accepted by the recipient, and delivered. Gifts can also be left on death in a will. Gifts left in a will may take the form of a specific bequest or a share of the residue. Where a will leaves more in gifts than the estate has, the law of abatement will determine which gifts are cancelled. Gifts can also be refused. As a postscript to our podcast, I've got an update. As fate would have it, a recent decision from Thunder Bay may have added a new dimension to the law of gifts, and it's worth a quick mention in our podcast. The case, Public Guardian and Trustee in Chernenko, was decided by the Ontario Superior Court and released on January 5th. The case concerns, among other things, an alleged gift made by an elderly woman to her attorney for property. The attorney for property, Tina, had only recently been appointed by the very elderly grantor, Jean, when she accompanied Jean to the bank. 
Among the transactions they completed that day, Gene transferred $25,000 to Tina, roughly a quarter of Gene's savings, in what Tina claimed was a gift. Days later, Gene was formally diagnosed with dementia. Tina then assisted Gene with a move from her longtime home to a long-term care facility. Instead of selling Gene's home, Tina allowed her son to live there rent-free. The suspicious nature of the transactions resulted in an investigation by the public guardian and trustee, who ultimately took the position that the $250,000 transfer was not a gift and that other sums taken by Tina ought to be repaid. On the evidence, the judge decided that the transfer wasn't a gift. But he did so not by finding that Gene lacked the capacity to give the gift, but by finding that the transfer was subject to a presumption of resulting trust, a concept that had previously only been applied to jointly owned assets held by both a parent and an adult child, and in a notable case of registered retirement income fund designation to a child. When a resulting trust is presumed, the law takes the position that true entitlement to the asset remains with the transferor, and that the recipient only holds it in trust for the giver. Unless the presumption is rebutted with evidence that the transferor intended to give the asset as a gift, the asset is found to belong beneficially to the transferor, and the court may order its repayment. It is interesting to note that the court here said that it could also have ordered the money returned because, as Jean's attorney for property, Tina had an obligation to look out for Jean, what lawyers call a fiduciary duty, and that Tina breached this duty when she accepted the transfer from Jean. This is an interesting expansion of the law around resulting trust, gifts, and it's something that we'll be watching for in the future. Next episode on the podcast, we'll be talking about the substantial compliance doctrine and will variation. We hope you'll join us. If you've enjoyed our program, please like and subscribe to our future podcasts. And please consider sharing our show with your friends and colleagues. KPMG Law is an international law firm with offices around the world. Our affiliation with KPMG gives us an unprecedented ability to combine legal, accounting, and audit advice for our valued clients wherever they live and do business. At KPMG, we value integrity, excellence, and courage, working together with our clients for a better future. We'd like to thank the KPMG business development team for editing and producing this podcast. And until next time, remember, you can't take it with you.